Welcome to Ormwood Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and to our podcast where we share our Sunday sermons for those in Ormwood Park, Atlanta, and beyond. Our mission is to welcome everyone to explore the living God in all of our neighborhoods, and we value welcoming others, opening our minds, being of service, and participating in whatever ways God calls us. We hope you learn, grow, and find a place to belong with us. So we are in week two of Advent, and we are reading today from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. So listen now for a word from God. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be a belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den, and they will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. So second week in row in Advent that I was struggling to write this sermon. I've been struggling partly this week because it's hard when scripture has these passages that point to this imagined great future, right? One where justice is enacted, leaders are righteous, enemies are friends, equity reigns. God is known in this future reality and God's kingdom is fully manifested. Today's passage is an example of this. Along with some of the passages from our devotions this week, there is this great push in these types of readings to imagine a future of peace, even if we still aren't experiencing it in the immediate present. And I suppose that's probably where the rub is for me, right? (laughs) The present looks a lot different. But for this passage in Isaiah, the world around Israel is in flux. The Assyrian Empire is on the western or the eastern side of the nation of Israel, pressuring and threatening them with expansion. And then the smaller countries to the west are putting pressure on Israel to stand up to the empire, to fight back. And Israel is sitting there in the middle of these feuds and wars and powers that are much bigger than itself. Isaiah had hoped that King Ahaz of Israel would have been the king the people needed, the strong leader, but that didn't work out. King Ahaz just made more chaos, not less. And so Isaiah, in our passage, is looking to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, part of that line of Jesse, that line of King David. 
And he's looking at him hopeful that Hezekiah will be the leader they needed to enact the peace they desperately wanted. But we read this passage in Advent because then people in Jesus's time read this scroll from Isaiah hundreds of years later and thought, huh, that's us too. We need a strong leader. We need someone with integrity who can stand up to the Roman Empire and establish a world where the meek and the poor are prioritized, not demonized. We need someone who is wise and faithful and righteous. We need this leader. And you can almost hear those whisperings go through the crowd, first with John the Baptist and then a bit louder with Jesus. Is Jesus this leader? So we celebrate in Advent that yes, Jesus was and is that leader. He came to offer wisdom, right? To align God's priorities with the needs of the poor and the oppressed. He practiced and encouraged the most impossible things. Perhaps not children playing with snakes, but Samaritans helping Jewish folks, tax collectors being reintegrated into the community, and transforming people's sufferings into shouts of joy. Hezekiah came for Isaiah and Israel, and Jesus came for us all. So then why are the lions still eating meat? (laughs) Has anyone promoted vegetarianism to the bears? And why are some of the leaders around us comparing the burning of people to the crisping of cookies? The conversations in our places of importance and the leaders we have don't sound very righteous. If Jesus came as this promised leader, if Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, why isn't the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? We are still singing waiting songs in 2022, probably similar to the ones in Isaiah's community and Jesus's community thousands of years ago. Why? Why are we still waiting for peace? Why is it still aspirational? I don't actually personally believe that it's still aspirational because Jesus's mission was faulty or short-sighted or ineffective. I think we're still singing songs of waiting, of hoping, because peace is actually very, very difficult for us. It's actually some of the hardest work of God in our lives, in the lives of nations, and in that long march of history to justice. I have a little book called Peace Prayers in my office, and it's a book that came out in that ramp up to the Gulf War in the early 1990s. A group of publishers for HarperCollins were looking around at the tenor of the country and the world and saw people were just bent on war. They saw them united for the first time in a long time, but they weren't united around love or compassion or hope. They were united around the desire for war publishers decided that they needed to offer a counter narrative, a different idea, a different option. They needed to break up the many words published every day in the newspapers and in speeches promoting this desire for violence. It was everywhere, overwhelmingly the war narrative. They needed to break up that steady call to word or to war with words that imagine and hope for and work towards peace. I wanted to offer a different perspective on the future lived in peace. So in the introduction to the small book called Peace Prayers, they are not naive. They do not think peace is complacency or avoiding conflict. In fact, they know that the work for peace is often much 
harder, especially interpersonally, than the expressions of war. In collecting the writings and the prayers and the meditations on peace from people around the world who long for and work toward and have experienced peace, the lead editor, Clayton E. Carlson, says that they found those who pursue peace have chosen to follow the most demanding and courageous of paths. Those who pursue peace have chosen to follow the most demanding and courageous of paths. So we read these calls for peace because we too want to be doing that hard work of imagining a path towards it. Peace Prayers first explores how peace is about facing those images of war and all their brutality. It remains, or it demands this honest reckoning with the damage that not pursuing peace wreaks. And then the book offers writings on how peace actually starts within a single person, right? One willing person to do the excavating of their own desires and thoughts and conflicting natures. We must, as Simone Weil so articulately puts it, admit that we contain the seeds of every crime. The pursuit of peace must begin with us. It must start with our own internal work. But the book doesn't end there. It explores this idea that peace is actually more than just the space between wars, right? It's a whole new way of living. It's wholeness. It's shalom of God. It's a way of being in the world, not a cessation of conflict. Seeking peace is being actively engaged in work for well-being for everyone. But then the book ends asking the question, what exactly is peace? What does it look like? What does it feel like? And this last part of the book is kind of their equivalent to our images of lions and lambs and cows and bears and wolves and lambs in the passage from Isaiah. They speak into existence. They offer the alternative alternative image of hope, not war. I think this book is the brutally honest work of a group of people who, like Isaiah, realize that hoping in peace, imagining peace, setting our goals as peace is an important part of birthing it into fruition. Perhaps you're also like me. You hear these texts promising peace, and it's hard to square them with the reality that presses in around you. Isaiah just doesn't sit nicely in your experience. Strife, whether in your family or your neighborhood or throughout the world, seems the more likely even inevitable reality. That is exactly why we need to hear Isaiah. It challenges us to imagine anew. It removes our war blinders. When was the last time you actively imagined a peaceful consummation to a terrible situation? When was the last time, instead of rehearsing the terrible past or an imagined horrible future, you said, no, wait, this is actually what God's kingdom would look like here and now. And then you took a minute to see it, even if just in your mind. Tolstoy says that peace is actually written in our minds and our hearts, but I think we often don't go to that library or playlist. We instead go to the library of anxiety or worst possible circumstances or self-protection. Just like in the early 90s, we choose to rehearse the narrative of war. But what if we took a page from Isaiah's book and took seriously that one of our deepest acts of faith, even with Assyria to our left and annoying tribal neighbors to our right, is to imagine peace, to fill in the details of what it could look like. To adjust our angle to see God's shalom instead of our own limited perspective. 
Our call is to see the possibilities, to see things as they ought to be. This is how some translate the word shalom from the Hebrew, the way it ought to be. We need to remind ourselves of the way it ought to be. When I'm very stressed out, when Assyria is pressing hard in my own life, and usually that's in some form of my parents, I play this little word game. Well, it's a game with a very specific word, wish. I say out loud, I wish, and then I state the reality I wish for. I wish people would feel loved by God. I wish my parents weren't so scared. I wish for a leader in our country who had very little ego and lots of righteousness. I wish our neighbor's meds would start working. And guess what? It always helps. Because there's very little possibility of living in God's surprising, subversive, abundantly gracious reality if we've never imagined what it could be. Isaiah knew that when what we can imagine, we can build. What we can imagine, we can recognize when it arrives. What the Spirit sets aflame in our hearts and imaginations, the world can then enact with the coming divine power. This is what we keep awake doing all throughout Advent, imagining and watching for all the different and diverse inbreakings of God's shalom, so that when the time arrives, we can just like shrug our shoulders nonchalantly at our neighbors and echo the lines of Mary Oliver's poem that Catherine referenced in her devotion this week. Only if there are angels in your head will you ever possibly see one. Amen.